On December 21st, according uh, to the Mesoamerican long calendar, court calendar of the Mayans, a cataclysm of some sort will happen or some kind of transformational event. This uh, has not gone unnoticed around the world. Some say that the world will come to an end uh, in a violent way, and others that we can expect some kind of spiritual awakening around the world, but it'll be universal if not cosmic. What is not in doubt, of course, about the Mayan calendar and those who take note of it is that uh, uh, people who uh, have some kind of uh, interest in these things are preparing for the end. In fact, there is panic buying in some countries. I don't know whether you know that or not, but in, in Russia and China, uh, evidently quite a few people have taken this seriously and they have bought candles and, and provisions for the end. Uh, in uh, Mexico, people are joining prayer vigils and, and so forth to uh, prepare themselves for the end. Even secular France, one of the sec- most secular countries on earth, if not the most, finds that in the, the uh, eastern part of the, of the Alps, people are gathering at a, a remote village, mountain village, uh, because they believe that space aliens there will deliver them uh, from this uh, cataclysm that is uh, coming on December 21st. Now, I suspect that you, some of you didn't even know about this. Uh, I wasn't too much aware of it. I have been aware of the Mayan calendar. But there are people who take it seriously. In fact, so, so, so much so that there is a man in this country by the name of Ron Hubbard, not uh, L. Ron Hubbard, but Ron Hubbard. He's a manufacturer of high-tech underground shelters, and his business of late is a booming business. Now, I do take something from all of this that I think is important uh, for us. I, I, I take something from the fever uh, that I mentioned about end times that hits. And uh, in this case, it is simply this. There seems to me, regardless of a person's relationship to Christianity or to Christ, regardless, there seems to be traced upon the subconscious of every person in the human race that there is an end to life, if not to the world. And uh, I would, I would uh, draw forth as evidence the amount of programs that you see on television that have doomsday scenarios. And some of them are presented as fact on the Discover Channel and other places. So there seems to be some kind of subconscious sense that everything is going to come either crashing down or be transformed into something new. And it appears that in their minds that the world is not going to end with a whimper, but with a bang. Now, I happen to think the fallen humanity uh, retains, if you will, a sense of uh, an ending to things because they are made and created in the image of God. And some biblical truth still resides in the subconscious, no matter how much we try to press it down or to remove it from us, it seems to crop up in many and various ways. 
I also happen to think that the uh, doomsayers uh, in the environmental movement likewise are manifesting this particular, you will, if you will, traces of uh, this biblical notion that there is an end to things. Well, every once in a while, this notion comes to the surface, and it doesn't take much to trigger it. I can remember uh, growing up in the family next door, devout Jehovah's Witness, and um, they, of course, had instilled in their children uh, very much about the end times, and, and uh, one of the boys, the older boys, grew up and got married, and he went off, and he was not uh, living according to the tenets of the faith in which he was raised, and, and an uh, Indian guru had prophesied that the end of the world uh, was coming, so he went home and confessed to his wife all of his sins, which ended his marriage. And um, so you see that people will, will uh, uh, take these things very seriously. Now, there is a reason for this, of course, and it is because there is an end. There is an end. But this fuzzy, corrupted view that lies, if you will, just below the surface of human consciousness is uh, just that. If we really want to know what the end is, we then must turn uh, to our Lord and uh, hear his promises and his words and his teaching. There is an end, and this is the second sermon that I have uh, uh, that I'm preaching on the second coming of Christ in a way. In all of these sermons, I want you to see that we as Christians are to prepare ourselves uh, for the end or for the return of Christ. Our preparations, though, is not through trying to calculate the, the heavenly bodies and figure out some kind of, of end through astrology, nor, let me say, and this might hit close home to some of you, nor by listening to so-called teachers of the Bible who have nothing to offer but their fanciful schemes uh, that come out of their own imaginations. Uh, we all would like to know when it is. And the scriptures do talk about the end and even talks about signs, and it's profitable to study those things. But remember, that's not the emphasis of the scripture. The emphasis of the scripture uh, lies somewhere else. And it is my purpose today uh, to talk about that. The reason that I say it lies elsewhere is because the end and the coming of Christ are really taught in the scriptures to enable us to trust God and his grace, to enable us to look for his coming that our lives might be purified at his coming. Now, over and over again in the scriptures, it is interesting that when Paul talks about the second coming, he always brings up, if you will, the Christian life and ethics. He's more concerned that we prepare our hearts and look for Christ than he is anything else. And so in this text in Philippians chapter 1, in uh, verses three through uh, eight, which happened uh, three through eleven, which happens to be the text, Paul finds himself in, in prison. Now, this is not the first time he's been in prison, but he finds himself in prison again, and he has a capital sentence over his head. He is always under the threat of death for preaching the gospel. Christianity 
was not an acceptable religion in the Roman Empire at this point, of course. And therefore, the Apostle Paul, according to many Romans, was doing something illegal. He was going about proclaiming Christianity. And from time to time, he would find himself in prison. And in this case, he finds himself there. He writes this letter to the Philippians to commend them, to commend them for supporting him. They obviously had given him some gifts, gifts of money to help out in the ministry. They'd also prayed for him and they had communicated to him that uh, they were on his, uh, that uh, he was on their hearts. Paul also writes back to let them know that these Christians are on his hearts. And this is where he invokes then the coming of Christ. And I want you to see that he must have been thinking about the end of things, if not the end of all things, the end of his own life. And look what he writes. He says, I thank God every time I remember you in all my prayers for you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Notice they are sharing with him the sufferings and the hardships, yes, that go with supporting the gospel. He says, I thank you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this. And listen to this wonderful key verse. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, what might the day of Christ Jesus be? Well, if you read the letters of Paul and Peter, uh, that simply is a way of referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says that regardless of my circumstances and your circumstances, God is doing something in our midst and in our lives that is preparing us for the end. Now, this passage is a prayer. I want you to notice that. And uh, it is a prayer for the Philippians. And what does he pray in this prayer? Well, Paul is confident that God will continue to work in the hearts and minds of his people, preparing them for the very end of all things. Now, I don't think the Apostle Paul knows when the end of all things is. It may very well be that he thought it might be in his day. I don't know. But he wants the people to be prepared for the end of all things, and, they, and that will come. And if it does not come in your life, then, of course, you will come to your own end. Now, that, that is a disagreeable statement in some sense to remind people over and over again of their end. But the truth is, it can be a holy and sanctifying notion on your heart if you remember those things. Doesn't the psalmist say that? Oh, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. But it is also important to know that God is in charge of history and not uh, these human beings uh, who devise calendars based on the stars or whatever else, but God himself is in charge of human history. Now, what does Paul mean by this then, that he will guard and protect your heart? First, Paul believes that God's grace is at work in every believer's life. That is an important statement. God believe, I mean, Paul believes that God is at work in the lives of these Philippians, and Scripture teaches that God is at work in our lives. Sometimes we don't feel that or know that or conscious of it. Sometimes we may think we're conscious of it. 
But he says that God is at work in our lives, so much so that he will keep us till the end. Now, this is a wonderful promise. And Jesus said to his own disciples, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age or the end of the world. Christians believe that Christ is not only here with us today as we worship through his name, but we also believe that he is with us wherever we go and that God's grace is at work in our lives. Paul reminds then the Christian people at Philippians that God is at work in them. And I would remind you that God is at work in you. Now, there are evidences of God's work, and Paul goes on to talk about some of these evidences. One of the evidences, of course, uh, he follows up in verse uh, 7, and he goes on to say, It is right uh, for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affections of Christ. And then he goes on to say, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. One of the evidences of God's grace working in us is love for God. It's that simple. One of the evidences of, of God's grace working in your heart and life, Paul says, is love for God and a love for the knowledge of God and deep insight into what he is doing and saying. And of course, this means the study uh, and understanding of the apostles' teaching and Holy Scripture. It comes down to the fact that Paul is really pointing them to the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And he's talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. In a real sense, he is pointing them to the source of the knowledge of God. Paul believes that God's grace is at work in these, his friends. And he says that is manifest through your love and your love for knowledge and deep insight, which comes through the scriptures. So Paul says that is one way that God is working in you and you can sense that in your life. You know, the love of God draws you to God. We, we sentimentalize love today and we only understand it mainly as an, as an emotion. But for the Apostle Paul, it has an object. And, and as it has an object, it also bears fruit. That a person loves to, to the, not only to be drawn into the presence of God, but also that that person loves to understand and to enjoy the great things that he has revealed for us. Another demonstration that God is at work in you is that you support the apostolic ministry. Notice the apostle here is thanking them for supporting his work and for supporting him. I think one of the evidences of a person's love for God is their support uh, for the apostolic ministry as it manifests itself in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if there is any institution in the modern world that has slid out of the minds and consciousness of contemporary America more than anything else, it's the church. When I was growing up, and I happen to think that wasn't too many years ago, but when I was growing up, uh, it seemed like that uh, most of society appreciated Christianity. 
Really so. I think most of society did appreciate Christianity. Whether you were a Christian or not, I think you appreciated the blessings of Christianity upon this country and upon the life that we had. I also think that people appreciated the churches that would manif- manifest themselves on the corners of, uh, of block after block in many of the cities and towns. And look at all the churches in this area. So there was a time when people appreciated in a greater way than they do today the blessings of Christianity and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then why hasn't that been maintained? Well, it has in the hearts and minds of Christians. The problem is that we have become a distinct minority in our own country. But God still manifests himself through love in the life of his people in their hearts and minds as they love the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as it manifests itself in the church. You know, we not only say we love the Lord, but we love his church. In fact, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is called his body. In the, uh, in the ancient uh, uh, Greek church of the fourth and fifth centuries, uh, the Greeks taught themselves uh, and taught people to make the sign of the cross. And it's interesting that the ancient way of making the sign of the cross was different than many Roman Catholics, Anglicans, and others who do. It went from right to left, and then they would pat their heart. Now, in many traditions in the West, that is done in many and various ways, but the Greeks taught their people to do this, that when they walked into the church, And they saw the open Bible that they were to make the sign of the cross and to say, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and they would pat their chest. What were they saying? They were saying that the center and light of our life is what is found there and what God is doing in our lives. They were, if you will, theocentric in their thinking and understanding. It's a wonderful thing to be theocentric or Christocentric in your life and thinking. It keeps you from being seduced by the spirit of the age. It keeps you keeping on. It is a manifestation of the grace of God as he keeps you and preserves you to the end. You are preserved by your loves, and in the end, you will get your loves, won't you? If you love scripture and the knowledge of God, you will have that. One of the things that C.S. Lewis points out over and over is that in the end, everyone will get what they love and what they really, really want down deep. And so when Paul talks about the second coming of Christ, he puts it in the context. What do you really love? What is really the joy of your heart and life? What is your purpose? I think Rick Warren's book, The purpose-driven life was so popular because he was once again taking people back to this basic fundamental aspect of what do you really love? What is your purpose in life? And Paul does that over and over and over. And the church down through the centuries has done that over and over and over. Now, God's work in the believer also manifests itself in other ways as well. Notice what the apostle says here. And this is my prayer that, you, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the coming of Christ. 
So he's calling us to purity as we view the end. You've heard me say before, and I'm going to say it again. Aristotle had a wonderful insight into the way things work. He really said the most important thing in life is the end of a thing. If you're going to build a building, you have to know its purpose or end to determine what you're going to build. If you're going to live in it, you're going to build one kind of building. If you're going to worship in it, you're going to build another kind of building. If you're going to, to house your dog or your cat, you're going to build another kind of building. Notice the end or purpose of the thing determines everything before that. The end or purpose determines what you are going to do and the actions that you're going to take. And so Paul wants to keep in mind that there is an end of things so that your life might be affected and influenced all along the way. All along the way. It's those who forget who God is that begin to, if you will, uh, be the bad steward or the unfaithful servant. It's always keeping in mind that the master of the house returns, that keeps you keeping on, keeping on. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is a wonderful teaching in the Scripture. But almost always it has to do with helping you to live a sober and righteous life in the present world. Now, there are people who are preparing for the end. Um, I think the whole uh, global warming movement at least in part, is, is somewhat, I don't want to overstate the case, but there's a lot of politics involved. The conference that is taking place right now at the UN and other places, really, if you look at it very closely, they're asking for a massive uh, a shifting of resources to deal with this. Lord Moncton, one who doubts that there is global warming, was thrown out of the UN conference. But there are many, many people who are very, very serious that there is a doomsday scenario out there waiting for all of us unless we prepare. They're going to marshal all their resources and all of your resources to that end. The same thing about us. We really live in another kingdom. And there is an end to all things, but the end that we are looking at is described in the scriptures. And Christ will come. And the question for us is, then what preparation are you making to that end? I've dismissed the Mayan thing. I almost forgot all about it. Did you? December 21, you're going to hear more and more about it. But I have not forgotten that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back for you and for me and for his church. I've not forgotten that. And let me say, that is a hope. That is a truth that will affect your whole life and the way you look at things. It will keep you keeping on the right way if that is part of your subconscious. When you're not even thinking about Christian things, if you have this hope in your heart and life, it indeed changes your life and purifies you. It enables you to press on toward the mark of our higher calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
The second coming is a wonderful teaching, and it is absolutely necessary teaching so that we might be prepared when our Lord comes for us. Here again, what the apostle says. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God bless your minds and hearts and your lives with this blessed hope. Amen.